You're listening to a podcast from City Tribe Media. We're an urban tribe that helps people who feel far from God to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. For more fresh content, check City Tribe on YouTube, Instagram, or Facebook. Enjoy the message, and welcome to the tribe. Now here's Lee Wong. Howdy, tribe. Hello to everyone joining us digitally, everyone listening via podcast. We are in part three of a journey through a letter that was recorded in the late first century and has been collected in our Bibles and is known as Jesus's revelation to John, or more commonly, just revelation. And our aim in this series of teachings has been for us as a community, us as a tribe, to learn from the past what was, and in order that we would become acquainted with what's been promised about our futures, what's to come, so that we all would adjust our lives accordingly to experience what God himself, Jesus, described as a blessed Life, And so that we all would live with a confidence that when Jesus returns and he establishes his coming kingdom, that we would be be recipients of an inheritance. Jesus clarified the purpose of his revelation to us this way. He said, look, I'm coming soon and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. Now, today we pick back up right where we left off in part two last week with Pastor Doug. We're going to unpack Revelation chapter two, verses eight through 11. So if you plan to follow along in the scriptures, get out your Bibles and go to Revelation chapter two and meet me in verse eight. Now, this section, it is the second of seven different messages that Jesus gave to seven prominent Jesus-centered communities in the first century. And the message that we're going to explore today, it was directed toward followers in a city that was known as Smyrna. Somebody say Smyrna. Smyrna, not Smyrnoff, you sinners, it's Smyrna. And what Jesus had to say to his followers in Smyrna, we all as individuals and collectively as a tribe, we absolutely must learn from and we must allow to penetrate our hearts and our minds. And here's why. Because of the seven communities that Jesus addressed, Smyrna was one of only two that did not receive a sharp disapproval, a correction or a rebuke from Jesus. Instead of correcting the Smyrnians, Jesus commended them. And let's imagine it like this. Okay, so let's imagine that the richest person in the world, who currently right now is Elon Musk, imagine Elon said to you, you know, I have been watching how you live, and I gotta say, you possess something that I admire. And then imagine he went on to say to you, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna make you the poster person for how my company should hire people, and for how all of my employees should conduct themselves. You're going to be the model. Now, that would be a huge compliment, right? You would be a big deal after whom everyone would try to model themselves. Well, in this scenario, the richest man, Elon, what he did for you is essentially what Jesus did for the folks in Smyrna. And check this. Okay, so Jesus isn't this billionaire American. No, he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the one to whom all things are entrusted. And he described them as being filled and full of heavenly treasures. He described them as having an abundance of otherworldly wealth. And he suggested that their lives were full of purpose and they were meaningful and they were passionate and they were powerful individuals who made an impact. He said it to them this way. Here's how Jesus commended the folks in Smyrna. He said, you are rich. Y'all 
I got to say, I absolutely want the one to whom all things are entrusted, the creator of the heavens and earth, Jesus, to say to me, Lee, you possess something that I admire. You've got something way better than material wealth. And I absolutely want for you and for your families, for our entire tribe to be regarded as rich in Jesus's eyes. Am I alone in that? I mean, anyone else want to be a part of a tribe that Jesus would commend and not correct? If you want to be a part of a tribe that's rich in Jesus's eyes, let me hear it with some claps. Y'all in the comments and the chats, let me see some high fives, some thumbs ups. And so today we're going to explore just what it would take for you, what it would take for me to be like the folks in Smyrna who are commended as rich and who were not rebuked. But before we jump into today's teaching, let's pray as we always do and invite God by his spirit to speak to us. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, as always, we ask that you would just help drown out whatever distractions we may have come in here with. Help calm our racing hearts and our racing minds and help us be centered and focused to hear whatever it is you want to say to us. Lord, we want to leave here transformed. We want an experience with you. And Lord, for me personally, as always, use me as an instrument. Use me as a vessel. May the words that come out of my mouth glorify you, be an accurate representation of who you are. May they be an encouragement to the folks here in the tribe, cover up any misstatements, cover up any uh, misunderstandings of what I may have stated. I, I trust this, Lord, I want you to be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And so what was uh, so commendable about the Smyrnians that Jesus considered them rich? And what might you and I learn from them to ensure that we live what Jesus described as a blessed life? Now, to best understand what was so commendable about the folks, the followers of Jesus in Smyrna, it is best that we first understand their social context. And as we explore what life in first century Smyrna was like, here's what I want you to do. I want you guys to consider a time in your life where you may have felt peer pressure. For example, maybe it was in grade school where you felt the peer pressure to conduct yourself a certain way or to dress a certain way around a certain group of people. Or perhaps it's the pressure that you may have felt around the water cooler to badmouth a fellow employer, to badmouth your boss with other coworkers. Or maybe it's a pressure that you felt from family to have a Catholic wedding or a pressure from your in-laws to raise your children in a certain way according to their customs. And here's why I want you to consider that pressure. Because... The followers of Jesus in Smyrna felt a certain pressure due to the cultures. Culturally speaking, Smyrnian life, it was similar to what in part two last week, Pastor Doug described about life in Ephesus. Smyrna, it was located in what's now modern day Izmir, modern day Turkey. And given its location on the Aegean Sea coast, it enjoyed an exuberant economic success as a port city. They valued wealth. They valued status. And y'all know how like the Vatican is central to Catholic worship or how Mecca is central to Islam worship. Well, Smyrna, it was the city in Asia Minor that was central to the worship of Roman gods. Here's what I mean. So around the year 28 BC, Smyrnian officials in this politically strategic move to be able to receive a bunch of resources from the Roman Empire, they pledged their allegiance to Rome and they began to worship Rome and its emperors as if they were gods. They 
eventually laid a street known as the Golden Street, which spanned east to west throughout the city. And they lined it with all sorts of temples to various Roman favored gods like Zeus and even Emperor Tiberius. And so Smyrna's devotion to pleasing Rome, it's largely responsible for what became known as the imperial cult, the group of people who worshipped Rome and its emperors. And for a sort of Holy Week observance, once a year, citizens in the Asia Minor region, they would travel to Smyrna and then to express their gratitude to Rome for its greatness at various temples and to various statues, which represented the sons of God, citizens offered sacrifices or they beat themselves to draw blood and to sprinkle it on the altars. And then they professed Caesar is Lord. I'm sure you can imagine there was a sense of pressure that the followers of Jesus felt. And so when the message that Jesus is God, when it began to permeate the city and penetrate and pierce the hearts of some of the Smyrnians, many, they decided, hey, we're no longer going to participate in these pagan practices and we're no longer going to worship the empire. And so Jesus' followers, they were thus seen as a disruption to the economic order and a liability to Rome's success. One first century historian, Swutonius, he described Christians in this way. He said that they were a new and mischievous superstition. And because of their mischievousness, locals, they began to fear this new superstition. They feared that it would arouse the wrath of their gods. And so angry mobs, they began to harass and they began to shun Jesus's followers. They weren't permitted to work. They were forced into extreme poverty and some were physically punished. Now I want y'all to listen to how first century historian Pliny the Younger described just how Jesus's followers were punished. He wrote, he said, I asked them whether or not they were Christian. And if they confessed that they were Christian, I asked them again, And then again, a third time I asked them and I intermixed threats with questions. And then if they persevered in their confession that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God, well, then I ordered them to be executed for this positiveness, this certainty that they had about this guy, Jesus, and the inflexible obstinacy, their stubbornness, it deserved to be punished, slandered as mischievous, shunned socially, oppressed economically, suppressed into extreme poverty under the constant threat of imprisonment and execution and nowhere to flee or take refuge. Think back to that pressure a few moments ago that I asked you to recall, that pressure that you once felt. Now take that feeling, that sentiment, and then multiply it by two million people around you that are against you. This is a glimpse into the dire circumstances. And this is a glimpse into the intense affliction and suffering that the Smyrnians experienced. And yet, according to Jesus, they were blessed and they were rich. And so what exactly did Jesus see in them? And what does he want you? And what does he want me to learn from them that we might be blessed as well and live as rich in his eyes? Well, How Jesus began his address to them is very foundational to what we all need to know. And it's actually very insightful as to what the Smyrnians were doing that was so unique about them. And what Jesus said, here's what I would wager. I actually would wager that perhaps when we read it and when we hear it in our world today, it's a remark that we simply just gloss over pretty quickly. We don't pay it any mind, but for the Smyrnian audience. 
what Jesus said, it would have been a refreshing reminder of what they needed to continue doing, what they needed to continue to have drive their lives. You see, Jesus began his address with a callback to three declarations that were made about himself 800 years prior through the Jewish prophet Isaiah. These declarations, many of the Smyrnian believers would have been ultra familiar with. And so to help us understand what was so refreshing about these declarations, about Jesus's reminder, we're going to look at those declarations from the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament, because grasping these declarations, understanding the implications of them, it is key to becoming rich in Jesus's eyes. And so y'all do not miss this. Are y'all ready? We're about to go through those declarations pretty quickly here. So the first declaration, it described Jesus's power as unmatched, and it communicated that Jesus is in total control over human affairs, that he is sovereign, even when it seems like he's not, and that he is supreme. Isaiah recorded, the Lord hands nations over to men, and he subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword, like wind-driven stubble with his bow. I am the Lord, the what? First and with the last. And then the second declaration, it communicated that Jesus is not confined by our physical realm of time and space, but that he's eternal and that he's everlasting. And he thus knows what our futures hold and so that his promise can be trusted. All of his promises to us can be trusted. Isaiah recorded it this way. I am the First, and I am the last. There is no God but me. Who like me can announce the future? Let these gods declare the coming things and what will take place. They won't be able to. They ain't going to do it. Is there any God but me? And then the third declaration that we have to get, it communicated that Jesus is capable of taking nothingness and from it creating a miraculous masterpiece because he is gracious and because he is generative. And so with him, nothing is impossible. Isaiah wrote it this way. I am the first. I am also the Last, my own hand founded the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. Now, there was a recurring phrase all throughout these declarations. What was it? First and last. And so hopefully hearing these three declarations, you have an idea of what was implied when the Smyrnians heard this phrase, the first and the last. The implications of this phrase, they were so great that the Smyrnians, they would not have glossed over this. In fact, many When hearing this phrase or reading this phrase, they would have bowed down in reverence. And it's with this very phrase that Jesus reminded the suffering Smyrnians and he reminds you and he reminds me of exactly who he is and exactly what needs to be driving our every action and our interaction. He was in effect saying to them and he's saying to us today, look, you might be oppressed. But stay grounded in this truth that I overpower those who have power over you. And you might feel afraid and you might feel anxious, but always remember that I know the outcome of the future, of your future. And unlike those Roman emperors who died, I didn't stay dead. And so with me, nothing is impossible. So here's how Jesus identified himself to the suffering Smyrnians, that he wanted them to continue to grasp and that he wants us to grasp. He said it this way, thus says who? The first 
and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. Listen, if you and I are going to be a people like the followers of Jesus in Smyrna, if we're going to be a people who are in Jesus's eyes seen as rich and who lived the life that he described as blessed, we can't be a people who simply believe Jesus existed. We can't be a people who nonchalantly understand, okay, historically, sure, he was raised from the dead. No, we have to be a people who are so persuaded by his supremacy, who are so persuaded by his sovereignty that our reverence of Jesus governs our every action, our every interaction with people. When you and I wake up, Jesus needs to be the first thought on our minds. When we, when we go to sleep, he needs to be our last. When you and I are pressured into accepting a popular ideology or when we are being drawn in to join a political fanaticism, our beliefs, our behaviors need to go through the filter of Jesus' teachings first. And when we think we've finally formed an informed opinion, we need to give Jesus the last word. And when we're beat down by others' opinions of us, perhaps you received a negative performance evaluation, we need to remember who Jesus first declared we are. And we need to remember that he has the last word about our worth and our value. When we're grieving the loss of a loved one, or when we ourselves are fearing and facing death, we need to remember that our last breath in this life, on this earth, it gives birth to our first moments in Jesus' pain-free, peaceful presence in paradise. And it's only, only when you and I, in our hearts and in our minds, at least attempt to grasp what it means, the implications that Jesus is first and last, only then will you and I begin to live blessed and be rich in Jesus's eyes. And so all of this for us, it really raises a sort of big idea, a sort of takeaway for us today. And we phrased it in the form of a prayer. And so my encouragement to you is that what's going to be displayed on the screen is a prayer that you internalize. Maybe you write it down in your notes and you say it daily or as regularly as it comes to mind. And here is that prayer, our big idea for today. Father, help us grasp that Jesus is first and last. Father, help us understand as best as humanly possible. Father, help us comprehend, perhaps with the mind of Christ, with your mind. Help us have a confidence. Help us have a courage that Jesus has power over even death, that Jesus is eternal. Help us gather and grasp exactly, cling to what that means, that Jesus is first and last, so here's what we're going to do right now. On the count of three, those of you who are watching, whether here in the Cameo Theater or maybe you're watching from home, I want you to read with me that idea that's on the screen. Those of you who are listening via podcast, just pay attention with intention here. On the count of three together, we are going to read, Father, help us grasp that Jesus is first and last. Pretty simple, right? All right, so here we go. On the count of three. And those of you joining us digitally, perhaps type it in the chat. One, two, three. Father, help us grasp that Jesus is first and last. And y'all, I can't stress this enough. This is a prayer that I encourage you to pray daily. Because this single idea, the single statement that Jesus made, it is so integral to living the blessed life and to being rich as Jesus defined it. And it's so integral that we're going to spend the next few minutes reconstructing for some of you, or perhaps even reinforcing for you a firm foundation in your faith. 
And so, why? Why in their suffering, even in their suffering, were the Smyrnians inclined to grasp to this idea that Jesus is the first and the last, that he is supreme and that he is sovereign and not like these Roman gods that stayed dead? And why should you and I, why should we allow this idea to drive how we live, our every action, our every interaction? Now, to answer those questions, let me ask you this. How do you hope life will look in your mid-80s? How do you hope to enjoy the final season of your life? Perhaps the final season of your life. Well, I know for me, when I'm in my mid-80s, my hope is that my wife, Christine, and I, that we will have stewarded our resources and stewarded our health and our bodies in such a way that we'll be able to travel. And my hope is that with our children and our grandchildren, we'll get to see some world wonders like the Great Pyramids and maybe even the Mayan Pyramids and Machu Picchu. And ideally, we'll be able to enjoy a bunch of exquisite and exotic foods and teas from various cultures. And hopefully, we'll get to wake up whenever our bodies naturally say it's time and we've had enough rest And this one, oh my gosh, I hope it comes true. I hope that we'll be able to take at least one midday nap daily. Like how amazing would that be, right? And ultimately, when I'm in my final season of life, I hope that I get to do whatever I want, right? I hope I get to just chill. And I bring this up because when the author of Revelation, when John recorded his letter, he was in his time in history considered an old man. He was in his mid-80s. And so he should have been enjoying the final season of his life, traveling and being a foodie with friends. And yet, instead of doing what I hope to do, John was imprisoned in a sort of first century Alcatraz penitentiary. And he was sentenced for up to at least 10 years to sleep on rocky grounds in a dark, dank, damp cave among despicable criminals. And this was the case because even after six decades, John, he was still adamant that the world needed to grasp that Jesus is first and last. He described his sentencing this way. He said, I, John, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I couldn't shut up about him. And you might be wondering, okay, well, what does this have to do with us grasping this concept, this idea that Jesus is the first and the last? Well, in a previous letter to the various faith communities in that region, Asia Minor, John told us why he was willing to endure so much suffering and why. Even after six decades, he was still maintaining his belief that Jesus was in control over all of human affairs, that Jesus knew the future and that Jesus could do the impossible. Three times in that letter that he wrote, John essentially said to his audience, he said, y'all, countless others and I can personally and physically attest to this, that we saw and we touched a man who was brutally beaten and buried, but somehow we don't know how he was alive again. And so his story isn't a myth that we merely heard about. It's not a rumor that we're regurgitating to you guys. Jesus isn't like these lifeless and powerless statues of Roman gods that need sacrifices. No, the reason that we say Jesus is God, 
And the reason that we worship Jesus as God and the reason that his movement has swept our world even into the pagan stronghold Smyrna is because countless witnesses have attested that he was literally, he was physically, he was bodily raised from the dead. John wrote it this way. Y'all pay attention to this. It is significant. Referring to Jesus' eternality, that Jesus is the first and the last. He said, what was from the beginning? What we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and what we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and we declare to you the eternal life that was with the father and revealed to us. In other words, Jesus somehow had power over even death. He was alive again. And then a third time for emphasis, he said, what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you. This isn't a myth. So John, he wasn't chilling in his 80s because John was convicted by who he had personally seen and who he had physically touched after he was crucified. For six decades, John didn't care if he suffered. He didn't care if he spent his dying days on Patmos Island because he wanted everyone. He wanted you. He wanted me to know that Jesus was in fact raised from the dead and that he is God. John's unswerved conviction for me. It's one of the many reasons why I grasp that Jesus is who he declared himself to be. And it's one of the reasons why I hope you will at least consider the same, that Jesus is the first and the last. And John's conviction is a reason that we thus should arrange our lives and adjust our lives according to Jesus's teachings. Now, I can understand that that story that John's testimony, his eyewitness account might not be convincing enough for you guys. I totally get that. But I want you to also consider Polycarp. Y'all ever heard of Polycarp by any chance? So Polycarp, a real historically verifiable individual, he grew up among the first generation of Jesus followers when Jesus's movement exploded throughout the ancient world. And Polycarp, he would have seen and he would have heard the firsthand testimonies from folks who themselves had been healed by Jesus or who had seen Jesus perform many miracles or had seen Jesus alive after being crucified. Polycarp even had the privilege of becoming John, the author of Revelation, John's personal disciple. And so surely some of John's unswerved conviction rubbed off on him, right? And Polycarp, even because of how when Jesus ascended into heaven, John took into his care Jesus' mother Mary. It is very conceivable that Polycarp even had conversations with Mary about Jesus. And all in all, here's what I'm saying about this. Polycarp became persuaded that Jesus has power over even death, that he is God, that he was the first and the last. And he was eventually installed as the lead pastor over all of the Jesus-centered communities in Smyrna. So perhaps we could call him Papa Smyrna. Papa Smyrna. Okay. Not using that one. My wife told me not to use it. Should have listened. And so during his tenure as the lead pastor, as Papa Smyrna, he received a revelation from Jesus that he would be buried alive for his faith. And so when the Roman officials became intent on killing him and they hunted him down, he didn't fear and he didn't flee. He simply said, God's will be done. 
And when they eventually arrested him, the Roman officials, they said, hey, look, okay, you can escape this execution. You don't have to go through this. All we're asking from you, Polycarp, is just one simple thing. All you've got to do is just renounce and denounce this Jesus guy. And instead, we want you to say Caesar is Lord. And perhaps it was all the time that he spent with John and all the other eyewitnesses. And perhaps it was his personal experiences following Jesus or the vision that he had received. Because despite the consequences that faced him, Polycarp, he remained faithful to his conviction, to his belief that Jesus had power over death. That Jesus was in control, that he was sovereign and that he was supreme. And he retorted, sealing his fate. He said, 86 years have I served Jesus. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Then he was burned alive. Now you can read more about this historical event in the book titled The Martyrdom of Polycarp. But y'all think about this for just a moment. All right, what would it take for you, like Polycarp and like John, to willingly suffer for what you believe? I mean, those guys, they had to have been thoroughly convinced that this life is just the beginning, that our last breath is not the end. And so for me, John's and Polycarp's unswerved conviction in the face of affliction, in the face of suffering, for me, they're just two of countless reasons why we can grasp that Jesus is, in fact, the first and the last, the one who died and came back to life. And again, I understand how their stories might not be that convincing for you especially to adjust your whole life, to rearrange your whole life according to Jesus's teachings. That I know is asking a lot. And so consider yet another reason that's inherent in Polycarp's story. And to understand that reason, y'all consider this. All right, so over the last 50 years in particular, supposed experts, they've made countless newsworthy predictions about the future of our world, the future of humanity. And I'm sure many of you have heard those predictions. For example, America... It should have been subjected to food rationing starting in 1974. We should have had such a food shortage that all of us should be starving and we should have stamps and being in line to be served little rations of food. And then New York was supposed to have been completely underwater two years ago because of the melting of the Arctic. And then you and I, we should all be living to well over 100 years by now. Our life expectancy was supposed to have skyrocketed significantly. And in the year 2000, we should have had another ice age. Right? Snowpocalypse from earlier this year does not count. But we should have had another ice age. And here's another one. This one I am so disappointed about. We're supposed to have flying cars. Where are the flying cars? That would have been amazing. Now, obviously, none of those predictions have come true, and so I'm sure you would agree with me. We humans, even our so-called experts, we're terrible at predicting the future. If I could predict the future, I would play the lotto. Now, what's fascinating about all of this, this truth that we're terrible at predicting the future, is the severe suffering that Polycarp and the other Smyrnians that they experienced in 155 AD, that is exactly what Jesus predicted would happen When John recorded Revelation 60 years prior in 95 AD. Jesus told his followers in Smyrna that for an unspecified period of time, a symbolic 10 days, that they would be targeted and subjected to a more intense suffering. He said that some would even be imprisoned. 
until they were executed for their faith in him. Jesus predicted the Smyrnians intense, intensified suffering this way. He said, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you and you will experience affliction. Now, this is just one, one of at least 17 other predictions that have been recorded in the New Testament from Jesus that have come true just as he said. And so let me ask you this. How can anyone accurately predict the future 60 years before it actually happens? How can anyone consistently 17 times at the least predict what's going to play out in human history? Well, they can do it if they live outside of our physical realm, outside of time and space, if they are eternal. That is, a person can accurately and a person can consistently predict the future if they are, as Jesus claimed, the first and the last. Now, here is my point with all of this. The reason why we studied John, the reason why we studied Polycarp and Jesus's prediction is because you can be persuaded by what John and countless others attested when they said that the reason people began to worship Jesus is because he died and he is the firstborn from the dead and they touched him. And you can be persuaded that Jesus, in fact, knows exactly what the future holds and how the future is going to play out. And so you can confidently adjust and rearrange your life to live according to Jesus's teachings, even when it doesn't make sense. And especially when you don't want to. You can be persuaded that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is in total control. He is sovereign. He is supreme. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the one who is, who was, who is to come. He is the almighty. You can be persuaded that Jesus is exactly who he claimed himself to be, that he is the first and he is the last. Now let that sink in. Let the implications of it sink in. Father, help us grasp, truly understand what it means that Jesus is first and last. Help us understand his sovereignty, his supremacy, his great unmatched power, his graciousness, his generativeness. And now, in the same way that John grasped this truth such that he willingly suffered even in his old age, and in the same way that Polycarp grasped this Truth such that he had a faith to fearlessly be burned alive. Jesus essentially said to the Smyrnians, and he says to you, and he says to me, grasp so tightly this truth that even in the most traumatic moments of your life, you continue to trust that I am in control, that I have power over death. I hold the keys to Hades. Jesus said it this way. He said, be faithful to the point of death. Be faithful to the point of death. And if I'm honest with you, okay, that's a really tall order, right? It is a sobering thought. I'm, I'm being so sincere with you. Even though I study the scriptures, even though I pray often, even though I am in ministry as a vocation, it is a sobering thought for me to ask, do I really grasp about Jesus what John and what Polycarp grasped? It really chills me to ask, would I? 
Like my pastor friends in Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan, where it's illegal to be a Christian, or my friends who are in China, will I be willing to go to jail to further Jesus' kingdom movement? And I don't know. I don't know if like the four Indonesian Christians who just last month, they refused to pledge allegiance to a certain religion and they were consequently beheaded. If a knife or a machete was to my throat, would I be faithful to Jesus to the point of death? Would I, like the 11 Jesus followers who are killed every single day for their faith in places like North Korea, in places like Afghanistan, would I continue to grasp that Jesus is the first and the last with power over even death until my last breath? Would you? Do you have the kind of faith that John had, that Polycarp had, the kind of faith that Jesus is encouraging the Smyrnians to have, a faith that remains until the point of death? You know, the reality is I can teach about Jesus until I'm blue in the face. And we can explore all of the historical and the philosophical, the sociological, the scientific evidence about his resurrection. And we absolutely should. Everyone should at some point go to Jesus 101 where we explore that stuff. But until we marry our intellect with the testimony, the evidence that is from Jesus' spirit, our faith may never be cemented. John's and like Polycarp's, our faith may never be unswerved in the face of difficult circumstances. And the fact of the matter is, we need Jesus' help daily if we're going to ever grasp this truth about who he is and his sovereignty and his supremacy. And it's no surprise that the Smyrnians understood this. Because in that previous letter that we had explored from John, he taught how Jesus' spirit it provides an even better evidence than any human testimony or any course curriculum ever could. John wrote it this way. He said, the spirit is the one who gives evidence, is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. If we accept human testimony, guess what? God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his son. He has given us his spirit when we place our faith in him that we might know that God is with us, that he has power over death, that he is unmatched. And so if we're ever going to be blessed and if we're going to be rich in Jesus's eyes, we have to be a people who very often, who daily ask, Father, help me grasp that Jesus is first and last. Help me understand this. Help me comprehend it. Help me remain faithful to it. And I believe that when we couple our intellect with asking this of our Father daily, because the Spirit is the one who testifies, like John who couldn't shut up about Jesus even in his old age, then you also will not be able to be mum. You will not be able to stay quiet about the life that Jesus has produced in you, the life of purpose and passion and power and meaning. And I believe that like Polycarp's fearlessness, to face being burned alive. No matter what troubles come your way, no matter what affliction, no matter what suffering over time, you will confidently be able to say, God's will be done. And he has done me no wrong. Why would I blaspheme my king? And then like the Smyrnians, 
And then like the Christians in our world today who are suffering for their belief in Jesus, you too will eventually develop a faith that remains to the point of death. And then Jesus will say to you, and he will say to our tribe, you are rich. But if we don't, perhaps like the other five communities that Jesus addressed, perhaps we might get a little correction. Perhaps we might get a little sharp disapproval, uh, rebuke. And so right now, let's ask our Father to help us grasp that Jesus is first and last. The band is going to lead us in a song. And the lyrics to the song say, give me faith to trust what you say, that you're good and that your love is great. It's essentially saying, Father, help us grasp that Jesus is first and last, his eternality, his supremacy, his sovereignty, his unmatched power. And so wherever you're watching or listening, whenever you're watching or listening, perhaps right now you wanna just create some mental space and maybe you sit in silence. Or maybe you put your hands out in front of you as if to receive and ask for the pouring out of Jesus' spirit, which testifies, or maybe like a child who has his or her arms raised saying, Father, carry me, you raise your hands, or maybe you just stand and you sing along, but let this song be our declaration that Jesus, we want to grasp what it means that you are first and last.
one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. this about us. Our flesh is weak. Our faith may fail. But we're asking, Lord, that you would help us trust that you will never fail. Help us trust that you are sovereign, that you are in total control, even when it seems like no one is in control. Help us trust that you are supreme, that you have power over even death, that you conquered it. Don't let this just be stories for us, but let it be a real experience from your spirit that testifies, Lord. We want to be a people of your spirit. Your spirit is truth. And so speak to us, help us grasp that Jesus is the first and the last, that we might have a faith that remains even to the point of death. Lord, we want to be a people, a tribe, who in your eyes are rich and live the life you intended for us, that we would be blessed. We need you. Help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said, amen. Well, brothers and Sisters, we are going to continue with our series, our journey through the letter of Revelation next week for part four. We hope you will join us for that. And as you go, before you return next week, let me speak this benediction over you all, brothers and sisters.
may you be a people who understand, who seek to grasp what it means that Jesus is first and last, that you understand his eternality, that you understand his sovereignty, his supremacy, or at least seek to, that you might have a faith that remains even to the point of death, that you would be rich, that you would be blessed as Jesus wants to reward you. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week. We're glad you were part of the tribe today. To further connect with us, check citytribe.church.